Amen. Let's take our Bibles, please. First, First Timothy chapter 4 this morning. First Timothy chapter 4. We're going to do something a little bit different, and we have a handout today. We don't normally do that on a Sunday, but if you did not get a handout and you would like one, please raise your hand. Um, we're going to go through some Baptist distinctives this morning, and uh, I just want you to uh, have something that maybe you can take home with you and keep it in your Bible, and you just kind of go over those things every once in a while. And so if you did not get one, please raise your hand. We'll get an usher to get you, get you one quickly. All right, we have some over here and over here. So ushers, if we could get uh, some of those handouts quickly, maybe some of our staff could help with that. And uh, they're out on the Welcome Center. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and while they're getting those to you, we'll read our scripture this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, I'm just going to be up front with you. I have been a Baptist most of my life. All right, I don't really know anything else as far as being to other churches or anything like that. I've studied the doctrines of other churches, of course, in Bible college and such. Now, I will say I was baptized in Anglican as a baby, but I don't remember it. I don't remember it at all. I probably cried. I probably screamed a little bit, but I do, re- I do know that I was baptized at St. John's Anglican Church as a baby. And, uh, but other than that, I don't remember a time where I did not come to Bethel. I think I was probably three years old or so, maybe even four, when we started coming to Bethel. And uh, some of my earliest memories, I can remember going after church to the nursery to pick up my brother. And so I can remember that very vaguely over at the other building. And so I've been a Baptist my whole life. And, uh, and so, but I, I, want, I want you to understand something. You say, well, aren't, aren't we pretty much most churches the same? No, we're not. If we were, we wouldn't have Baptist or Pentecostal or Methodist or all the rest. Uh, we would just have one church. And uh, let me say this. I have no doubt in my mind it is God's desire that his church is one. I believe that. It is the misunderstanding and the, the twisting of scripture of mankind that we have different churches and different denominations. But there's also apostasy. And so we, uh, I don't know why the Lord burned my heart this way this week about just bringing in some reminders of what a Baptist is and why we are a Baptist church. And, and uh, you know, I look back to 1925 and there were some Bible preaching churches that decided let's, let's for the sake of unity and strength, let's join together. There was some Methodist churches, most of the Methodist churches in Canada, there's a few that did not join, and about half of the Presbyterian churches in Canada. Now, they had different views on, on how somebody might be saved and different things about their eschatology and such. Uh, but back in those days, for, for the most part, a lot of them preached the gospel. Congregational churches, there was a lot of congregational churches. You think of D.L. Moody and such, that was congregational. And uh, they all joined together to form the United Church of Canada. And as a result, they had to water down their doctrine to keep everybody happy. And we have what we have today, a complete church that's in apostasy. And so we want to be careful that we don't go in that direction. And you say, well, pastor, I don't know if I necessarily agree with all these things. And, and, and that's fine. You don't have to. But let me, let me just be clear up front. We are a Baptist church. This is what we preach and teach. And if you want to join us, you're joining us. We're not joining you. You, you got that, right? I'm not trying to be unkind. I just want to be clear that, that uh, I've been a Baptist my whole life. And the reason I'm a Baptist, listen, this is important. I always say this. I'm a Biblicist first and then a Baptist. I'm a Biblicist by conviction and I'm a Baptist by consequence. 
And what I mean by that is because I believe the Bible, and I believe the Bible literally, and I take it literally, uh, I believe that the closest that I can come to being a biblicist within a denominational framework, obviously, is a Baptist church. That's just what I believe. I believe the Baptists preach the Bible. So that's why I'm here. And, and so I don't, I don't have a desire to pastor any other type of church. And so I want to be sure that every once in a while we remind ourselves. He said, well, isn't this a Wednesday night lesson? Can I be honest with you? The few people that come on Wednesday nights are already Baptist. Okay? <laughs> and so I'd be preaching to the choir. And I know the choir needs preaching too. You look at them up there once in a while. <laughs> the choir needs preaching too. But I just thought I'd take some time this morning to remind you of why we are Baptists. We're going to have to move very quickly uh, to get through these seven distinctives that we will look at this morning. And uh, somebody cleverly put them together in this sense uh, that, and this is what I was taught in Bible college as well, the word Baptist. And it gives us seven different things from each of those letters, and I believe that they're all important. Now, these are distinctives. That does not necessarily mean they are the fundamentals of the faith. Understand the difference, okay? There are other churches that preach the fundamentals of the faith. What are the fundamentals of the faith? We believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, all right? That is not a distinctive because I believe there's a lot of denominations that believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if they don't, I'm not even sure what they're preaching. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and conceived in a virgin by overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, uh, I, I, we're, we've got a non-starter here. We have a problem. We believe in the fundamentals of faith. We talk about the blood atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved by the, the, the nature of his blood washing away our sins. And so those are the fundamentals of the faith. And there's a lot of denominations that might believe that. But I want you to be very clear today. There, these are just distinctives or what might set us apart. Now, there are some that would say, well, we believe that. And, and they would not be wrong. But as a group of doctrine or a grouping of doctrine, these seven things are distinctives that Baptists hold uh, to be true. And so let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning and understand why it's so important. Listen, I, I'm going to be honest. I would rather get up and I would rather preach something that's uh, the fire of God and exciting and bring down the, you know, the roof and all that. But listen, we, the Bible says we need to hold fast to sound doctrine. It's important that we know doctrine. And so let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're just going to use this passage to help us get started. And here is why, in this very passage, why doctrine is so important. Uh, we're going to get to a couple verses, and I might pause and let you think for a moment of who this passage is talking about. Notice what it says. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly. I like how Paul says that to Timothy. There's times in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, for example, where Paul will say, now this is not the Spirit speaking, but this is me speaking by permission. This is my opinion, and God has laid this upon my heart, and this is kind of what I want to say to you. But he's very plain in this passage, isn't he? This is what the Spirit of God says. Don't miss this. This is what God is speaking to us. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. That sounds pretty severe, doesn't it? 
That sounds like some pretty bad stuff is about to come down the pipe. He's saying in the last days, in the latter days, some are departing from the faith, giving heed to to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You say, boy, there must be some crazy stuff about to happen. What is it that's about to happen? Verse three, forbidding to marry. Hmm. Who does that? Of course, there's a denomination that forbids their clergy to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, Thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Let's pray together. Father, help us as we go through this doctrinal study this morning. And I pray, Lord, that it would help us to understand where we stand on the word of God. Lord, I pray that we would understand the very first point of biblical authority is so important. Lord, for there is no other doctrine aside from the word of God that matters. Lord, the Bible in this passage speaks of the doctrines of devils. And Lord, we are so quickly to fall for those things if we do not believe the doctrines of the Bible. And so Lord, I pray that you'd help us now, Lord, to understand your word. May the Holy Spirit of God sear it into our hearts today. And Lord, I need your help. So fill me with thy spirit, I pray. We'll thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, there are volumes and volumes written on Bible doctrine, and we're not going to get into thousands of doctrines today, but I want to give you seven things that make us distinctive as a Baptist, and we're going to jump right in. So if you have your notes there today, did everybody get one? Raise your hand. The men ran out and maybe didn't see your hands. If you need one, raise your hand. All right. And uh, now you don't have a pen, do you? Look for a lady near you with a purse. She has 42 pens in there. that she has stolen from her husband. (laughs) I know that from experience. I want you to look at Roman number one and look at the very first thing we're gonna talk about this morning, the letter B for Baptist, biblical authority. Biblical authority. Can I say this, that every other doctrine rises and falls on this one. If you do not believe that the Bible is God's word, how can you trust what it says about Jesus Christ being your savior? How can you believe in a a crucified, risen savior? How would you ever believe in an empty tomb? How would you believe in the virgin birth of the Lord and savior, Jesus Christ? And how would you believe the miracles that Christ performed while on this earth, not to mention those of Elijah and Elisha and others of the like? And how can we trust the prophecies of scripture? And how can we trust the gospel message? And how can we trust the pastoral epistles? It all rises and falls on on this one doctrine of biblical authority. We use the Latin phrase sola scripture or only scripture. 
Sometimes I'll read a statement of faith, and like you, you'll look at a website and say, I'm going to visit a church while I'm on vacation. And so you'll read perhaps their statement of faith, and it'll say something like this, that we believe that the Bible is our final authority for faith and practice. Our final authority for faith and practice. And I struggle with that somewhat because that implies there's other authority. I believe it is our only authority for faith and practice. That there's nothing else that should influence what we do in our local church other than the word of God, that is sola scripture. And so let's look at some scriptures this morning. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul writes to a young Timothy about the scriptures that are able to make him wise unto salvation. And he says this, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration means God breathed. So letter A in your notes this morning is simply the word inspiration. We believe that God's word has authority because it is inspired. It was given by God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Hey, listen, anything that comes from God is profitable for you. It is good for you. And the fact that God breathed out the very words of Scripture and inspired it for us, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And verse 17 says that, uh, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It equips us for life, but we want you to notice that first word, the word doctrine. That's where we get all of our doctrine is from the word of God. Second Peter chapter one, verse 21 is also another verse that's referenced in your notes there. It says, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but listen, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We believe that God's word is just that, it came from God. And because it comes from God, it is authoritative, and we believe that it is inspired of God. Now, there's a natural progression that comes from that. Because it is inspired, letter B, it is, uh, it is inerrant. It is perfect. Going back to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, if it is inspired or God breathed out, and it is profitable for doctrine, listen, it can only be profitable if it's perfect. It can only be profitable if it's perfect. Now think about that. If you were to go to the hospital this afternoon and, and need a little bit of uh, help to, to heal a, a body problem or a, a physical problem that you might be suffering and the doctor says, listen, I want to give you this medication. It's brand new. We're noticing that as we do trials, about 50% of the people are dying and 50% are living and it's helping of those 50% that are living through it, 50% of those are actually getting help, but the other 50% are getting sicker. How many of you want to take that medication? How many would you rather take a medication that you'd say, hey, no, no, I want something that's 100%. <laughs> I want something that's profitable. I got a headache, I'll take a Tylenol, I know it works. That's what it's like with the word of God. If it is not 100% in perfect, perfect and infallible, we cannot trust it. Every word is of God. And so it is an inerrant book. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, if you can turn there. We're not going to turn a whole lot today for the sake of time. I've put the scriptures in there for you to reference later. But I need you to see Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, what the Bible said, or what Jesus Christ says about the word of God. And verse 35, he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words 
shall not pass away. It is a perfect book. The Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 17 was praying and he was talking about his disciples when he was praying and he said that they needed to know the truth and he said this to God, thy word is truth. Truth cannot have even a little bit of a lie in it or it is no longer truth. It is a perfect book. It is inspired, it is inerrant, and because of that, it is infallible. It will never fail. First Thessalonians chapter two, that's letter C, in case you're trying to keep up with me this morning. Letter A is inspired, letter B is inerrant, and letter C is infallible. It's infallible. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13 says this, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Hey, listen, because it is the inspired, inerrant word of God, it works. It's powerful. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we have the perfect uh, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Listen to what Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Amen. You say, what is a jot or a tittle? There were just little marks that the Hebrews used in the scripture, like we might use a comma or an apostrophe. God says, even those will not pass away. Those little things that maybe change the tense or change the tenor of the word, even those will be fulfilled because it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. So the Baptists, as a Baptist, we believe in biblical authority. Listen, let me be very plain about something. Every once in a while, we make a mistake. I remember one time a preacher standing in this pulpit got up and said something from the scripture. He said, well, he says, you know, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say. I was a teenager at the time and a teenager, another teenager took his Bible and said, pastor, what about this verse right here? And he went, uh-oh. He said, what did the pastor do that night? He got up and he apologized. He says, I made a mistake. Because here's the thing, friends, where the Bible, whatever the Bible says is right and whatever we think is wrong. Where we disagree with the word of God, the Bible is always truth. We need to apply it. So biblical authority, letter A of Baptist, is this, the autonomy of the local church. The autonomy of the local church. The local church is an independent body accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. All human authority for governing the local church resides within the local church itself. So I've given you some verses there, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. That is the, church, the verses that we always call the church discipline. It gives the authority to the local church to mediate matters between members. The Bible says, if thy brother trespass against thee, let him go to thy brother and, and maybe he'll gain thy brother. And if that doesn't work, let him go with two or three witnesses. But if that doesn't work, let him take it to the church. And the church will mediate that situation. And if, if they see fit, if there's no reconciliation, if they can't see the, help the offender come to understand what damage he has done, then they have the authority to put him out of the church. 
but it gives the church, the local church, the congregation of the church, the authority to handle their own discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll see the other verse that is referenced there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, does a brother go to law with a brother? He says, doesn't the least of the household of saints able to judge these matters? And so he's giving biblical authority to the local church to deal with many situations that arise among us. And so we see the autonomy of the local church. As a Baptist, we don't believe in a denominational structure. The name Baptist does not smack of a denomination, but rather it speaks of a body of beliefs. And we need to understand that. There is no denominational head. If there was a problem in our local church, we are to deal with it. There's no denomination that we can call and say, hey, can you come and take care of this situation? And so we do not have that denominational structure. You say, why is that important and why is that scriptural? Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. I don't know if that's in your notes or not, but write that down. Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to this. And he, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in all things, he might have the preeminence. We are an autonomous congregation. We are not governed by outside authority. Now, a Baptist church may choose to fellowship with others, and we do that. We cooperate with others. We have 70 missionaries out on our missionary board that we support every month. We send them some money every single month to try to help them. Only two or three of them are actually from our church. It is a cooperation that we are trying to help for the cause of Christ and the sake of the gospel to help others get out to the mission field. So A is the autonomy of the local church. We are independent. We are autonomous. Letter P. Letter P. Number three is the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers. Now, I'm, I'm going to say this. The autonomy of the local church may not mean a whole lot to you. It may not. You may be sitting here today and you've been coming to this church for two or three years and go, oh, I didn't know we were independent. I had no idea. But this one ought to mean a lot to you. The priesthood of believers. Let me summarize it before we get into it. Here's what it means. You can go boldly to the throne of grace. I'm so glad that I don't have to go into a little cubby and put down a little window and confess my sins to some priest. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. Who is it? The man Christ Jesus. He is my great high priest. And because he sits at the right hand of the Father, I can boldly go into the throne room of grace and I make my petitions known unto God. Every born again believer has direct access to the throne of God. What a wonderful privilege that there's no man between us. Sometimes I appreciate you get a prayer request. You know, when somebody asks you to pray for them, that's a huge level of trust. Do you understand that? They're saying, listen, I am trusting you, one, not to gossip. Oh, nobody said amen there. <laughs> you know, gossip, they should have put a G in the word Baptist, Brother Roberts, because gossip is one of the Baptist distinctives too, I found. Ooh. But they're trusting you to pray, to go to the throne of grace. I, I just shared with my wife that we, I got a real blessing the other day. We had 30 years ago, almost 28 years ago, we saw a man saved, but his wife never got saved. 
as a matter of fact, absolutely hated the church, hated my wife and hated me. Jealous because now her husband was busy in the church and he was faithful and he was doing things for the church. And just, just bitter, angry against us for years and years and years. Then the other night, I got an email that said, I don't know who to turn to. Would you pray for my grandson? I think it's called ITP. He has, it's a bleeding disorder and he's had a brain bleed. He's 19 years old and he's laying in intensive care in the hospital. And I know you guys will pray for us. Never give up on people. A prayer request is such a powerful thing because it's saying, I trust you. I want you to pray for me. But here's the good news. There are times I, I think to some people, hey, you know what? You can pray too. <laughs> you, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to pray for you. We ought to bear one another's burdens. We ought to do that. But here's the good news. You can go boldly to the throne of grace. And you can pour your heart out to God. And by the way, you'll do a better job of it than I will. Because you are invested in that person and you know, pray, pray for my coworker, pray for my neighbor. Hey, God put it on your heart. You love them. You go to the throne and you weep for their souls. And God will hear your cry. Look what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ because it is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be put to shame. For you therefore that believe in the preciousness, <clears throat> but for such as disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble at the word being disobedient, wherefore also they were appointed. But ye are an elect race, a holy priesthood, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own choosing, that ye may show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a royal priesthood. What a wonderful privilege. Let me say this. If you were to look at the Old Testament priest today, and say, you mean that's the job I'm supposed to do? Here's, here's the twofold job of the priest. Number one, everything that the priest does, you are now able to do, or listen, or Christ has already done it for you. Amen? Amen? That priest would go every day of atonement and he'd offer up the blood of the lamb and place it upon the altar. Hey, Christ has done that. You don't have to do that anymore. But the other job of the priest was to intercede for the people. Now you can go boldly because Christ intercedes and sits at the right hand of the Father and you can go boldly to the throne of grace. The work has been finished. So the priest to the believers, letter T, Baptist, B-A-P-T, Baptist. The first one in Roman numeral four is there are two ordinances. Bethel Baptist Church, we practice two ordinances. Letter A is baptism, and you can write down letter B if you like. It's the Lord's table. Baptism in the Lord's table. By the way, we are one of the few churches that still today, or the Baptist Church is one of the few churches that still baptized by water immersion. Water immersion. And you say, why is that important? Because it's by water immersion that it closely associates us to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a death and it is a burial. You don't just sprinkle dirt upon a coffin. You bury it. 
And that is the picture. And by the way, if baptism is a picture, we ought to get the picture right. You know? Now, how many of you know who Paul Chapel is? So many of our students have gone to West Coast Baptist College, and it's a, a, a ministry of Lancaster Baptist Church, Lancaster, California. The church has run seven or 8,000 people. On, on Resurrection Day, they'll have 12,000, 13,000 people there. It's incredible. And Pastor Chapel, here, here's the funny thing. I often get mistaken for him. Not because of my preaching. Not because of any books I've written. I've not written one. Because we're both bald. We wear the same glasses. And uh, so there's been times where people will mistake me for Paul Chapel, And it's, it's a funny thing. I don't think that's a compliment to Paul Chapel. I don't think it is at all. As a matter of fact, years and years ago, Pastor Chapel and I preached the same conference and they both put both of our pictures on the same little card and when they emailed it out, they got our names swapped. I'm sure he protested. But a picture or an image is supposed to represent something, right? Can you imagine if I, Pastor Stansford, last, a couple years ago, we were supposed to go out to do some uh, missions trip, my wife and I, and we were going to go to the Stansfords and the Minions and the O'Briens and different churches that we support on, in Newfoundland, and we were planning on going out, and, and my wife's father died suddenly, and we weren't able to go. Pastor Stansford asked me, he said, would you send a picture out that I can put in the bulletin and let people know who you are? And I sent a picture of Paul Chapel. And it took him a little bit to catch it. The funny thing is, is that an image or a picture is supposed to represent something properly. You would not, you would not appreciate it at all if, if you said, could you send me a picture? So uh, I've done this. I, I've had to pick people up at the airport, a missionary or something. said, would you send me a picture yourself? I did that with Micah Phillips. Send me a picture so I know who I'm looking for when I get to the airport. Imagine if he sent me a picture of somebody totally different. I'd never find him. That is what baptism is all about. It is a picture. It represents something. You go into a place and they sprinkle somebody or they pour something over somebody and you say, what does that look like? No, we represent the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It identifies us with him. It pictures us with him. And so turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Is baptism important? Yes, it is. The disciples were commanded in Matthew chapter 28 to go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Baptism is your public profession of faith. You are telling the world. I've often said, I, I, I think it's kind of funny thing. To, like if I hadn't grown up in a Baptist church and this were my first Sunday here and we were having a baptism, I would think, isn't that a strange thing that makes somebody put on a funny looking blue gown and the pastor gets that big white Michelin man gown on and they get into a tank full of water and a room full of people and they dunk them right there in front of everybody? Isn't that kind of a strange thing? But when you make a public profession of faith, what you're saying is, I'm willing to do anything for you, Christ. I'm willing to follow you anywhere. And if it means to the baptisms of the water of death, to be resurrected again, I will do it. It is a profession of our faith in a risen Savior. Roman, uh, Acts chapter 2, notice if you will, in verse 40. Look at there, verse 40. And with many other words did he testify, this is Peter, and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
So we have a church here forming at Jerusalem, and the first thing you need to notice is, first of all, they were saved. They received the word of God. They repented and turned. The Bible says, repent and turn yourself from this untoward generation. And so they, they were saved, and then they were baptized as a profession of their faith. I remember sitting in a room one time with uh, a couple uh, folks that were, uh, their background was Mennonite, and, and they said, they just didn't understand why we were baptized as babies. We don't understand why we need to be baptized again if we want to come to your church or join your church. And I said, I asked the question, I said, let me ask you this, when you were baptized as a baby, what faith were you professing? And the husband still didn't get it, but the wife, the light went on, didn't it, hon? She just went, Oh. That's absolutely right. What are you professing? We are professing that we identify ourselves with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are testifying that we are truly born again, that we have been saved. It is the first step of obedience, and it is done biblically by baptismal immersion. Let's look at the other ordinance, Lord's table, quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just turn there very quickly with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We read this passage often when we do the Lord's table. The Apostles Paul is speaking of the Lord's table in verse 23. And he says this, for I have received of the Lord. So the Lord is directing Paul to do something that which also I delivered unto you, the church at Corinth. So Paul's saying, this is what the Lord has taught me and here's what I'm teaching you, the church at Corinth. Notice what it says. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do you as often as you drink it in remembrance for me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now understand this, some might say, well, we don't do the Lord's table anymore, that was the Passover meal, but notice this, Paul was coming to the church of Corinth who was already doing the Lord's table, but they were doing it wrong. The Bible says if we were to read on the rest of the passage, some of them were making a feast out of it. Some of them were excluding those who could not bring any food. And they had all the wrong motives, and they were making a mess of it. And Paul says, let me tell you what the Lord has taught me, for I have received of the Lord, and now I'm going to deliver it unto you. The same night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, take, eat, this do in remembrance of me. And there's a key word there, remembrance. It is a memorial service. Tomorrow, if you would pray for us, I'm going to Hamilton uh, for a memorial service. I asked for prayer about a week ago for a lady, 102 years old, and on Thursday night, she went and met her Savior. And so on Monday morning, or about 11.30, I'll be doing a graveside service only. When you live to 102, you don't have a lot of friends left. As a matter of fact, she, even her son died about a year and a half ago. And so she had no family left, and, and uh, he never had children. And, and, and so it's just going to be a very small gathering of a few people that remember her. But we're going to have a memorial service. That's what the Lord's table is. It's a memorial service. This do in remembrance. What do you mean by remembrance? It is not a sacrament. It does not give you any grace. It doesn't help you in any way towards salvation. As a matter of fact, it is remembering the completed work of salvation. I, I believe that the Lord's table ought to be a sober service. You say, why is that? Do you ever go to a funeral and crack jokes and make fun? 
That's not the purpose, is it? A funeral is often a sad affair. Especially when you think about a 33-year-old man who was cruelly beaten, whipped, and torn, and nailed to a cross of wood. And so it's a sober service, but it's a remembrance. If you are coming to the Lord's table and thinking that you're receiving some sort of special grace, you are not. But instead, it is commanded that we do it in remembrance of him. So how long? Until he comes. Until he comes. He hasn't come yet. And so we continue to practice the Lord's table. Let's look at the next thing, number five. We've got a, three more we want to finish quickly. This is another important, 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 important one. Letter I is individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. Let me read one verse. I've referenced Romans 14, 5 through 12, but let me just read verse 12 for you. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So every one of us shall give account of himself to God. I often, often try to preach the gospel. Now, I believe the entire Bible is the good news of God. I, I believe that. But I'm talking about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ and our personal responsibility to accept him as our savior. But let me say this. I will stand before God one day and God will say, did you preach the gospel? There's a lot of other things I'll be held accountable for, no doubt. But just on that one thing, did you preach the gospel? And I want to make sure I can answer to the best of my ability. But here's the thing. You will stand accountable to God how you responded to the gospel. Did you receive Christ as your Savior? That's what individual soul liberty means. There are some today that will teach a family salvation we have this idea of a Christian nation or a Christian home. And, and I, I believe, listen, I believe that there is some merit in having Christian, uh, a mom or a Christian dad and, and God provides a special grace to that home, but it does not bring salvation. Let me be clear about that. The Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if there's a, a believing, an unbelieving husband and a believing wife, let her stay because then the children are sanctified or they're protected. In other words, the, the influence of the world might be limited and different things will take place, God will protect. But when it comes to individual soul liberty, listen, every single one of you in this room will stand before God, every one of you. And you may not be pleased about a lot of things that'll happen on that day, but the most important one, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Did you accept him? Or did you reject him? And I'm not, when I say reject, I, I don't mean, listen, I'm not saying stomping your feet and walking out of the church mad and say, I will never accept Christ. Listen, we are so subtle in our refusal of Christ. We just simply bow our heads when the invitation comes and we know we need to accept Christ and we know we need to submit to him and we just say, mm, not today. Maybe tomorrow. I believe, but it's only a head knowledge. Have you received him in your heart? Do you know his grace? Have you experienced his mercy? Are you truly born again? You will answer to God for that. I've been to funerals. I've been to funerals for two people in the same family. 
that I went because I knew their children. I grew up with their children. And I don't remember mom and dad ever going to church. I had meals in their home and I don't remember them ever praying for a meal. I don't remember them. As a matter of fact, what I do remember a lot of time was drunkenness and partying. But yet at the funeral, because they were baptized as a baby into the faith, they're enjoying the splendors of heaven. No, no, no. Your mom and dad can't get you baptized by some priest and you expect to go to heaven. You have to trust Christ yourself. It is a decision that you must make. Individual soul liberty. I mean, that one verse is enough to sum it up, isn't it? So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Number six, letter S again. We're back to another S. Saved and baptized church membership. Saved and baptized church membership. Local church membership is restricted to individuals who give a biblical testimony of personal faith in Christ and have publicly identified with him in believer's baptism. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. I've already read it. We won't turn again. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized and then what? And added unto them. There was a, a progression there. They were saved they were baptized, and they were added to the church. In, two ver- in the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily, listen, such as should be saved. We are a saved membership. Now, you say, does that mean everybody that's a member of your church is saved? No. But everybody in the church has professed to be saved and has been scripturally baptized. That doesn't mean we're all saved. Oh, my. The Bible says if the righteous scarcely be saved. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm not trying to scare you or make you doubt your salvation today. But, friend, listen, I've said this a thousand times. If I can make you doubt your salvation, Satan's going to have a heyday with you. Because he's far smarter than I am. But we believe that a Baptist church is one that you have to be. Isn't, isn't, I, I think that's a good thing. I like that. We are not the Lions Club. We are not some, some quilters bee. You, you can't just walk in and say, hey, I want to be a member. No, you have to be redeemed. Born again, saved. And let me tell you what, what a difference that makes when we're singing praises to God. And the people come and they know the Lord is their Savior and they're grateful and thankful and they worship him in spirit and truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also is Christ. We are one. We are united because we are in Christ Jesus. That's what brings unity. Listen, the word Baptist does not bring unity. No more than Methodist, Presbyterian, or anything else. The only thing that will bring unity It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you saved? And let me give you the T at the end. There's two ordinances of the church, but there are two offices of the church. And those, of course, are pastor and deacon. 
The scripture I've referenced, of course, is 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read you just a couple of those verses. Verse 1 says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And 1 Timothy 3.13 says, For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. In, in, the, books of, in the letters of Titus in 1 Timothy, we read of pastors or bishops and deacons. That's it. Those are the two offices of the church. And the Bible gives requirements for what those are. And so as a Baptist church, we have pastor and we have deacons in our local church. Now, we may have more than one pastor. We have several pastors here at Bethel Baptist Church, and each have different skills, and they have different uh, areas of ministry that they work in. We have several deacons in our church as well. We have five right now, and they all serve in a different capacity. But those are the two offices of the local church, pastor and deacon. Our time is gone. But let me circle around one more time to this. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Why am I a Baptist? Because I hold to those distinctives. I believe them to be important because they're all in the Bible. It starts with biblical authority. Do we believe the Bible or not? We try not to add a little, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. But we try not to add anything to the scripture. There are times where I've, I've preached and I've heard preaching and I go, hmm, I don't know if that's in the Bible. And sometimes it's those things that get the loudest amens, aren't they, Brother Roberts? Those ones that, that we just get out there on a, a, a branch and just hope that the Lord will hold us up. But boy, I, I sure appreciate biblical preaching. Straight from the word of God. So why am I a Baptist? Because I hold to these distinctives. There's so many other things we could talk about today, but those seven are important. But let me ask you the, the most important one. There's, there's two that go hand in hand. If you believe the Bible, are you truly saved? If you believe the Bible, it talks about a Savior who died for your sins and that without him, you are lost and on your way to a Christless eternity in a place called hell. But if you believe the Bible... It also talks about a savior who loved you and died for you and paid the price for your sins and took your place. He paid that price and that if you trust him and receive him as your savior today, you can be born again and on your way to heaven. That's the essence of the gospel. Let's bow today. Father, we thank you for your word. Burn it within our hearts today, we pray. Lord, help us to understand what it means to stand upon the word of God. There are some things that are non-negotiable and Lord, I, I know there's a lot of areas we have liberty, but I don't believe we have liberty in these areas at all. Not the ones we spoke of today. We have clear direction of scripture. Help us to be faithful to it. And so Father, I pray, Lord, that you wouldn't allow any knowledge to make us prideful. Paul warned the church of Corinth about being puffed up. And Lord, sometimes knowledge can puff us up. And Lord, that's not the, the heart of the word of God at all. But Lord, instead, may what we know about the scriptures, what we know about Christ humble us to realize that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. So moving our hearts today, maybe there's one here that doesn't know Christ, maybe there's 10. But whatever work you would do, I pray that you do it perfectly and save souls today. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. For many of you today, this, this message was just information. 
I get that. I understand that. But it, I'm telling you, the doctrines of Scripture are important. But can I say for some of you today, this might be transformational. If you could grab a hold that this is God's word and that God loves you and he wants to save you, you could be born again today. We want to help you if we could. So one say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. If I were to die today, I don't know where I'd spend eternity. Could we help you with that? Could we take a Bible and show you what it means to have eternal life? Just slip up your hand. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you. Is there one say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I'm not sure I'm saved. Is there one? 